seminary, one of the things that we pride ourselves about at seminary is not only you guys who come out and learn on your vacation time, but the tremendous, tremendous uh, personalities, tremendous chassamim we're able to bring to learn Torah with you as well. And this morning's uh, guest speaker is no, is, is no exception. We are uh, privileged and blessed to uh, welcome Rashad Shechter to uh, share some of the Torah with us this morning. Thank you very, very, very much. Okay, good morning, everybody, and welcome. It's really a pleasure to learn with everyone. And some of you I know, many of you I do not, or I should say not yet. Um, but it's really a tremendous credit to your Rabbeim for putting this together, and what a beautiful Kiddush Hashem it is that we have the opportunity to learn together and to be inspired with one another. Um, so the topic I was given, Rabbi Turetsky and Rabbi Weinberg, as well as Rabbi uh, Rabbi Rafi, they all mentioned to me that what we're supposed to be doing today is talking about Geula, different topics about Geula. There's nothing that I enjoy talking about more than Eretz Yisrael and Geula. So I appreciate that you gave me the opportunity to do that. And um, well, let's get right into it. In Parshas B'chukosai, when the Torah outlines the Tochacha, all of the terrible things that are going to come upon the Jewish people when they do not do what they're supposed to. So the Torah there says, V'shavarti as ge'onuzchem. It forecasts for us that something terrible is going to happen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm going to break, I'm going to destroy Ga'onuzchem. What does Ga'onuzchem mean? It means some kind of the majesty, the glory of the Jewish people. Now Rashi on Chumash writes, what is it exactly does it mean when it says Ga'onuzchem? What is the pride of the Jewish people? Says Rashi, Zebeisamikdash. The pride of the Jewish people is not their money, it's not their beautiful houses, it's not their communities in Chutzlaretz, it's their Beisamikdash. That is Ga'onuzchem. It's the pride and joy and the glory of the entire Jewish people. This is what we stand for. This is what we are. There's a well-known Gemara Masech Shabbos, where the Gemara tells us, We are all going to have a very difficult conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And says the Gemara, there's going to be just a short list of questions that we are all going to be asked. Now, I sometimes think about this, and I ask myself, if I was coming up with a list of questions to ask anybody at the end of a fulfilled or a wasted life, I would come up with a very different list of questions, but yet... I'm not the Rebona Shalom. So I look in the Gemara, and the Gemara tells us a list of six questions that everyone is going to be asked. Number one, Omrim Lo, they're going to ask him the following. Number one, question number one, is going to be, anybody knows? No. Did you live an upstanding lifestyle? First question. You realize what that means? means it's more important than anything else. Were you an upstanding Jew? Did you deal with other people with honesty, with integrity, with virtue? Were you a person who conducted your business in an honorable fashion? Were you somebody who managed other people with respect? Did you live life? Were you an upstanding individual? Question number one. Question number two, Kavata Itim La Torah. Did you make Torah a priority in your life? Was Torah the foundation of every aspect of your life? That's the second question. Third question, you'll notice, is phrased very interestingly. Asakta, the period of a review. What does it mean, asakta? means, did you try to bring children into the world? The Torah can't ask us, did you bring children into the world? Because it's not up to me. I try whatever I can to get to that stage, but not always do I have the ability. So I try to date, and I try to get married, and then after I get married, I try to have children. Unfortunately, we know there are some people who don't find the shidduch. 
there are other people who do find the Shidduch and who unfortunately can't have children. There are some people who have children and then unfortunately the children pass away. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't ask, did you raise children and did you bring them into the world and did you have a perpetual legacy after yourself? No, because that's an unfair expectation. What HaKadosh Baruch Hu asks of us is, did you try? Did you try? Were you busy with this idea of trying to have children who are going to populate the world? And that's the best we can do. We ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he should have the mercy on us to be able to have that privilege. But unfortunately, not everybody does. But finally, the Gemara says, question number four is, Sipisa li Yeshua. Did you anticipate, did you live a life looking forward to a Geula, to a Yeshua? Now I ask you, who in their existence as a Jew would not want to experience a Geula? What kind of question is that? Did you look forward to a Geula? Who doesn't want to look forward to a Geula? Who's not looking forward to that? I want you to think very deeply into yourselves and into your parents and into your siblings and into every person you know in this community. You all live in the five towns. If you were to go home tonight, and please don't, because your parents will kill me. But if you would go home tonight and ask your parents, are you prepared to leave everything you have here in the United States? Get on a plane tonight because Mashiach has come never to see this home again never to see our cars and all the wonderful things that we've accumulated in our estate here, here in New York, we're going to Eretz Yisrael because the Geula has arrived. I'd like to know how many people are prepared to do that. See, peace of Yeshua. It's a very difficult question to answer. Not everybody is able to connect naturally to this idea of Geula, to this concept of Geula. Think back to the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. They saw all the miracles. They saw the makos. They were overwhelmed by what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did for them. And yet, when they came out, what are we told? What does it mean? Rashi on Chumash tells us. Vachamushim means only one-fifth of the Jewish people actually left by Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. means four-fifths, 80% of the Jewish people could not connect to the whole concept of Geulah. After you saw everything HaKadosh Baruch Hu did, you just couldn't believe it. It couldn't be a part of your reality. And the question HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to ask all of us is, see, peace of Yeshua. Did you have that mentality that Geula is something real in your life? That Geula is a real possibility? That it's something you're prepared to drop everything else for because this is what we aspire toward. This is really what the Jewish people are trying to yearn toward. This is our aspiration as a nation. This is what we anticipate. This is what we all want. And this is where we're going. Even if we're going to pay a big price for it. But Geula is a part of something that is a real foundational aspect of my life. That's the question the Gemara asks us. You know, we say the Animamans every day, which really are formulated by the Rambam. The Rambam in Sechah Sanhedrin outlines what the Animamans are all about. And of course, in the Animamans, we say about Bias HaMashiach. We talk about the coming of Mashiach. That's very well known. However, what is far less well known is a comment of the Rambam in Hilchus Malachim. The Rambam is who we rely upon for everything. Hilchus Shabbos, Hilchus Kashrus, Hilchus everything. The Rambam basically formulated the halachic process as we know it today. But the Rambam in Hilchus Malachim is probably studied less often. It's when the Rambam outlines what's going to happen in the times of the coming of Mashiach. And there's a lot of discussion there about different halachas that probably many of us have never looked over, have never learned. 
But in that conversation, the Rambam writes the following. Listen carefully to the words of the Rambam. Call no whoever does not believe in the Melech HaMashiach. Now you'll say, that's not describing me. Of course I believe. I say, Says the Rambam. Call whoever doesn't believe in Melech HaMashiach and in his existence and the concept. Then says the Rambam, lumping two groups together. Who's the second? Number one, somebody who doesn't believe in Mashiach. And number two, or somebody who does not look forward to the coming of Mashiach, says the Rambam. Lo says the Rambam, you are not just rejecting the other Nevi'im, you are rejecting Moshe Rabbeinu by feeling that way. If you don't believe in Mashiach, if you don't believe in the Geula, or you are you are not excitedly Looking forward, you are not eagerly anticipating the Geula, says the Rambam. You are a kofer b'taras Moshe, and you just don't believe in everything that Moshe Rabbeinu stands for. Very strong words. Doesn't say that about somebody who doesn't keep kosher. You don't keep kosher, you did something wrong. It's an Avera. You don't keep Shabbos, we know. Someone is mechala Shabbos, is dino kovid avadazar. Not everywhere do we find that you're a kofer b'taras Moshe Rabbeinu. Says the Rambam here, you don't believe in the Mashiach or you don't aspire toward his coming. You're not excited about that prospect. On such a person we say, you're a kofer b'toros Moshe Rabbein. That's an amazing statement. But it kind of gives us a framework to understand what exactly we're talking about when we discuss this idea of the coming of Mashiach and of a geula. <coughs> I do have strep. I'm on medication. Hopefully I'm getting better, but that's why it's hard for me to speak. I just didn't want to cancel on Rafi. I'm sorry. So there's a beautiful insight of the Medrash and the Psikta. And I really believe the Medrash is talking to our generation. It says the Medrash, Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu L'Tzadikim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns to the Tzadikim and he says, Lo yafe asisem shechivavtem l'torasi Says the Medrash, let's translate it into our terms. I don't think there has ever been a generation, again, I don't know Jewish history well enough, but I can't imagine that there has ever been a generation where Torah has been studied more than in our generation. Again, maybe not on the highest levels that they used to learn in the days of the Beis Yosef, in the days of Rabbi Kiva Eger, and all the great tzaddikim who came before us, but I don't believe, I don't imagine that there were this many Jews all over the world who were learning Torah like we have it today. That there was so much access to Limanat Torah. That we would come home from a year in seminary and then we would still say it's not enough. We have to go to learn some more. And our teachers from Eretz Yisrael would come in here to teach us. It's an amazing phenomenon. I don't think this existed at any time in Jewish history. I can tell you, my shiurim go online. I have no idea who listens, who doesn't listen. I never check, but I get emails from Arba Kanfos Haaretz. And I'm just a little nobody on the website. Imagine how many people are listening to the really good speakers and the really tremendous Marbitze Torah. It's amazingly inspiring to think about. You have people from different countries, different continents, who never had any contact, who never had any relationship with the Rabbanim and the teachers and the inspiring 
personalities who live on the other side of the ocean, and yet they're all learning Torah. And it's amazing. But says the Medrash, Lo yafe asisem shechivaptem letarasi, velochivaptem lemalchusi. While it's true that, yes, we are dedicated and we have a tremendous love for Limit Torah, but there's something lacking. We are not aspiring toward the Malchus of HaKadosh Baruch Perhaps we don't realize how much we're lacking without being in the Beis HaMikdash, without being in the presence of HaKadosh Baruch without being reunited with the Ribbona Shalolam. Maybe we don't appreciate what that means. So Liman Torah, yes, we've come to an understanding, we've come to an appreciation. We have gotten to a place where it has proliferated beyond our wildest imagination, but yet this aspect of Malchusi, of being reunited with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and having a relationship with Him, is something that is lacking. And that is what we miss without a Beis HaMikdash. In fact, the Medrash records a gripping conversation that took place between Yitzchak Avinu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, why was it Yitzchak Avinu and not Avram or Yaakov or Moshe Rabbeinu? I don't know. But the Medrash records this conversation at the time of the Churban Beis HaMikdash. There was a fear Yitzchak Avinu had that maybe the Jewish people would never come back. Maybe they would experience Churban and that would be it. Says the Medrash, Ribbonu Shalolam. Yitzchak Avinu turns to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and he says, Shema ein Chazara Lebanim. Maybe the Jewish people will never come back to Eretz Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu responds, Al Tomer Kach. Don't think that. Yesh dar shehu malchusi miyad heim negalim. If there will be a generation that will sincerely, enthusiastically look forward to my return, miyad heim negalim, I will come back. The only problem is, nobody cares enough. Says the Medrash, how do we know that's true? Because the Pasuk says, Yesh tikva la'achari sechnu Hashem, v'shavu banim ligvulam, which means, if you will be excitedly looking forward to this possibility, then v'shavu banim ligvulam, everyone will come back. The problem today is, Maybe, says the Medrash, that we just don't care enough. It's just not on the forefront of our minds. It doesn't really bother us. And that is the answer that was given to Yitzchak Avinu at the time of the Churban. Don't worry. The Jewish people will have the opportunity to come back if only they care enough. There's an amazing story I read a couple of years ago. There's a set of svarim that was written by Rab Gamliel Rabinovich on Chumash. I forgot what it's called, but it has a picture on the front. Anyone, anyone seen it? So somebody in the neighborhood bought me this set of svarim, really a beautiful set. I, I shouldn't say that. I only read one parsha, and the only parsha that I read was beautiful. So I assume that really probably is indicative of everything else in there. I just haven't had time to go through the rest. But the one parsha that I looked at had an unbelievable story. The story can be found in Parsha's Bechukosai, whatever the set of svarim is called, you can find it. But the story is an amazing story about the Beis HaLevi. The Beis HaLevi was the father of the Brisker dynasty. He was the father of, of Reb Chaim Salavechik, who revolutionized Torah learning for all of us today. The Beis HaLevi ended up becoming the Rav in Brisk, but it started off that he was living in Warsaw. And he was a very humble person. And on one occasion, the community in Brisk really wanted that the Beis HaLevi should move and become the Rav of the community in Brisk. And they were trying to figure out a way, how were they going to convince him to come and take the position in Brisk? And they knew if they offered him money, he wasn't interested in the money. If they offered him prestige, look how prestigious the community is. He doesn't care. That's not what he's looking for. 
So they were trying to figure out how they're going to get him. So they sent a couple of representatives of the community to go negotiate with the Beis Alevi to try and get him to move his family to this new community. Nothing was working. They tried convincing him with all kinds of tactics. Finally, one of the representatives turned to him and he said, you know, there are 10,000 Jews in Brisk who are expecting you to come back with us. They sent us on this mission. We got them all excited. We told them we were going to meet with you. They think we're bringing you back. You're going to let 10,000 Jews down? You're going to say no to 10,000 Jews? And the Beis Alevi said, okay, if that's the case, if 10,000 Jews are waiting for me, then I'm going to come. Packed up his family, and he moved his family to Brisk, and the rest is history. When the Chafetz Chaim heard the story, Chafetz Chaim began to cry. And the Chafetz Chaim said, the Beis Alevi, I'm sure, was a wonderful gentleman, a kind, warm-hearted soul who was sensitive, who loved other people. And when they told him 10,000 Jews are waiting for you, of course he didn't want to say no because who wants to say no to 10,000 people who want something from them? Do you believe, said the Chafetz Chaim, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is less warm and sensitive than the Beis Alevi? Can't be. The Rebona Shalom for sure loves us as much as the Beis Alevi does. Probably a thousand times more maybe a million times more. But for sure, he cares about us more than the Beis HaLevi did. Beis HaLevi is only a human being. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one who created us. Do you think if 10,000 people actually davened every day and really cared about the words they were saying and said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I mean it, I'm not just reading the Siddur, I'm not just running through the words. Imagine if 10,000 Jews anywhere in the world or collaboratively everywhere in the world said together every day, do you think HaKadosh Baruch Hu would say no? Said the Chafetz Chaim, it obviously means that there aren't 10,000 people who actually care enough. Because if 10,000 people would petition the Rebona Shalom with the same request as they went to the Beis Alevi with, there's no way he would say no. And his takeaway message was, it means there just aren't 10,000 sincere people who are offering such a tefillah. I was so taken by that story. It was very depressing. But really amazing at the same time. If 10,000 people got together, is that really the answer? If 10,000 Jews got together and only cared enough to ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu with sincerity, would we really have everything we're looking forward to? To me, it sounds pretty easy. To me, it sounds pretty easy. But the Chafetz Chaim began to cry because he felt... There's something lacking. We don't care enough. And when we talk about a geula, you have to really think about it in realistic terms. It's well known that the Chafetz Chaim had very limited amount of furniture in his home. And the reason why he said is because, what am I going to do when the geula comes? What am I going to do with this furniture? I'm just here overnight. He said the same way when I go to a hotel. I don't bring all my furniture with me. Whatever they have, they have. Whatever they don't have, I figure it out. Maybe I go to the supermarket to buy something to supplement, but it's all temporary. I'm not going to be here for the long term. I say every day, How long do you think I'm going to live here? So the Chafetz Chaim really had very limited amount of furniture. It's well known the Chafetz Chaim used to live with a suitcase. A couple of years ago, somebody gave me a beautiful small sefer. It's written by Rabbi Aaron Walken, who was a Talmud of the Chafetz Chaim. He collected a number of letters of the Chafetz Chaim that are not so well known, and he put them in a small volume he made a few comments on the bottom. 
Maybe he made some cross-references to other places the Chafetz Chaim had things. But one of the letters really was amazing to me. Chafetz Chaim was approached by two businessmen in Radin who were getting involved in a business venture. They were both partnering together. And they sat down with each other to make every kind of possible provision that one can ever imagine before they went into business. Now, it's always good to have everything laid out as carefully and clearly as possible. Just last week, I'll give you an example. It has nothing to do with the shear, but you can tune out now. I'll tell you when to come back. So last week, there was a rav in New Jersey who had the following shayla. This is not made up. It's actually a great shayla. So he had a member of his community who was making a bar mitzvah for his son. And this bar mitzvah was supposed to be celebrated here in America, but they decided they're going to go to Eretz Yisrael for Shabbos just as a family, and they're going to celebrate there over Shabbos and then come back and have the celebration here with the whole community. That was the plan. Now, he wanted to really give his children a very beautiful experience, meaningful experience. He decided to rent an apartment in the old city of Yerushalayim, and they were going to spend Shabbos together in the old city. He emailed a bunch of people, Airbnbs. He found out there was some religious homeowner in Yerushalayim who rents at his home, and he had rented the apartment for Shabbos Parsha Shlach, which was last week. They made up that when he landed on Thursday afternoon with the family, they were going to give him all of the information, they were going to give him the keys and everything they needed to know. Last Thursday afternoon, he gets a call from the, from the homeowner, where are you? And he said, well, I'm coming next week. He said, what do you mean, it's Parsha Shlach? He said, oh, we live in America, we're one Parsha behind. So he messed up on the date. And the problem now is he gave a non-refundable deposit for the apartment. The homeowner lost out on somebody else renting it out because he thought it was being rented. For him now to go and find another location a week before the time that he's arriving is going to be a fortune of money. He booked his way in advance. And it was an honest mistake. Now, I find it very unusual because when do you ever communicate with somebody in business and say, on Parsha Shlach, this is what I'm going to do? Usually you write some kind of date. I asked my father, is that a pshia? Is that somebody did something that they shouldn't have done? Or is that just an honest mistake? My father felt two Orthodox Jews who are in touch with each other, there's nothing wrong with writing Parsha Shlach. That's not so strange. It's not irresponsible. It's reasonable. Why would I think that there's a discrepancy in the Parsha? And it's actually beautiful that instead of talking about a date in June, we're talking about the Parsha. That's the way we identify. The Ramban says we're supposed to keep a Jewish calendar. Now the Ramban doesn't say keep it by the Parsha. You should say the Hebrew date, which they did not do. All they said was the Parsha. So they have to work out some kind of Pshara. So it's always good to have everything as carefully laid out as possible. So these two business partners decided, not because they didn't trust each other, but because it's better to have everything on paper, before we get involved. And they literally wrote out in the contract every single imaginable possibility that can ever happen in the business. What happens if I get sick? What happens if you get sick? What happens if I die? What happens if you die? What happens if your wife dies? His wife dies? What happens if your child gets sick? What happens if the store burns down? What happens if the merchandise doesn't get destroyed, does get destroyed? There's a flood, there's a fire. Everything in the world that could have ever happened to the business, they put in the contract. They then went to the Chafetz Chaim and they said, look, we're two Orthodox Jews. We drew up a contract. Neither of us know Chashem Mishpat. We're assuming that all the arrangements we made with each other actually make sense, but maybe you can review the contract and just make sure that it's something that actually holds up with the way the halacha wants us to run a business. Chafetz Chaim read it, and he got very upset at them. And he said, I don't understand. He made a contract with every 
possible imaginary circumstance that you can ever come up with? Is it so far behind your imagination? What's going to happen when Mashiach comes and we're going to have to close this door and run? Who's going to take the loss? That's less of a realistic possibility to you than lightning striking on the store and burning down all the merchandise. So all of that was in the contract, but not this. If you didn't write anything, so you didn't write anything. But what it shows me is that all of those scenarios that you imagined in the wild imaginations that you had are something that are more realistic in your mind than Mashiach actually coming, which you daven for every single day. That's troubling, said the Chafetz Chaim. That means you don't really understand what the possibility of Geula really is all about. So the Chafetz Chaim has an unbelievable letter. He writes, we know, the Torah says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak. We try to be honest people as best as we can. We know the Nabi says, She'eris Yisrael Yasu Avla Velo Yidabru Kazav. We know that the Jewish people pride themselves on being honest. It's the way we're supposed to be. As we said, it's the first question our Kaddish Baruch is going to ask us. Are you an honest person? Are you an upstanding individual? So we all believe that we should be honest. Now, every so often do we just say something that maybe is not so honest? Probably. Every so often do we do something that might not be 100%? Could be. We feel bad about it. But why do we do that? We think we can get away with it. We think we can get away with it. We think the other person won't know. Somebody told me a couple of years ago, a young woman called me up. She wanted me to speak to a boy who she had gone out with. And the boy was a member of the Five Towns community. So I said, look, I don't know every boy in the Five Towns, but tell me the story, then tell me who he is. Maybe I can help you. So I happen not to know who he is, and I have nothing to do with him, so I couldn't really help. But she said they were on a date, And the boy was pulling out of a spot in Manhattan. And as you know, people park very close to each other. And he totally sideswiped the other car as he was coming out. And he looked this way. And he says to the girl, all right, let's just pretend this didn't happen and let's move on. And he drove off. And the girl was horrified. I was so happy she said no to a second date. I said, Chaval, you said yes to the first date. But, and by the way, if a boy ever does that on a date, just... Don't go out again with him. You shouldn't marry such a boy. He's dishonest. So why would you do such a thing? Because you're a bad person? You're not a bad person. It's because you think you're going to get away with it. All right, a little here, a little there. doesn't really matter. No one's really going to find out. All right, th- that's what we think. Would you ever think of lying to the Ribbon Shalom? Okay, you think you can get away with it with a human being. And you think they're never going to find out and nothing's ever going to happen. That's one thing. Would you lie to the Ribbon Shalom's face? Like, you get up, HaKadosh Baruch is going to ask you, no, give me an answer. Where were you on, what are we today? Monday morning, Rosh Chodesh, Tammuz. Where were you? What do you mean? Where was I? Of course. Where else would I be other than learning Torah with all of my friends? Yeah, but where are the other 500 girls in this neighborhood who are not here? What are they going to answer? Okay, they were, of course, doing very important things on Central Avenue, I would imagine. You're not going to lie. I could just Who knows? What are you going to say? Yeah, of course I was there. You're not going to lie to the Ribbon Shalom. You know HaKadosh Baruch who can see straight through your lie. Says the Chafetz Chaim, we always try to be careful not to lie to anyone. 
But even if we make a mistake here and there with a human being, we would never do it to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We know he has a video camera of our whole life. So you would never lie to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And yet, says the Chafetz Chaim, in his own words, I'm not paraphrasing, in his own words he writes, every day, three times a day, we have no problem lying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's face. Every day. How so? In the end of davening, he says, I'm going to read you his words because you probably don't believe that he says it. He said, to me, it's shocking. What's shocking? Three times a day, every day, we say at the end of our tefillah. And what do we say in the second paragraph? You know, God, I look forward to this and I can't sleep at night. Why can't I sleep at night? Because I am so enraptured by this thought. I, there's nothing else in the world that matters to me. Means I'm really looking forward to what? You know what bothers me? Liras mehera b'siferus uzecha. It just bothers me that there's no base amikdash. It bothers me that I'm not experiencing the geula. Lahavir gilulim in It bothers me that when I walk around the streets of Yerushalayim, I see mosques and churches and avodah all over the place. Now, okay, someone online is going to send me an email that Muslims don't serve avodah Okay, very good. But Lamaisa. Lamaisa. Is there supposed to be a... Yes, these people do send these emails. Somehow before I even post it, they send the emails. So, I got it. Is there supposed to be a mosque on the Harabayas? There's supposed to be a Beis Amigdash. Yes, it's true. Kibesi, Beis Tefillah, Yikar Lechala Amim, universalistic, wonderful, will invite everybody. The bottom line is the Jewish people do not have sovereignty over the land of Eretz Yisrael. How do we know? Yes, we have a Memshelas Yisrael, but the bottom line is there's Avodah Zarah all over. That should bother us. It should hurt us. We say it in Aleinu every single day, three times a day. Lahavir gilulim in Aretz. I look forward to the day when HaKadosh Baruch Hu will figure out how to get rid of all this. We can't bomb a mosque. I'm not suggesting anyone should do that. We can't take care of this problem, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu, how are you not taking care of this problem? How do you allow for this Chilul Hashem? How do you allow the land of Eretz Yisrael to have all of this rampant Abedazara everywhere we turn? Says the Chafetz Chaim, you say that every day to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's face, like as if you actually care. Tell me. When was the last time you visited Yerushalayim and this thought even crossed your mind? Did you ever think about it? I'll be honest, it doesn't cross my mind. So I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse. But I don't think about it. It doesn't really bother me. I pass by, you walk through, you, you go to where you need to go. You pay attention to the things that are relevant to you. You ignore the other things. Says the Chavetz Chaim, you lie to the Rebona Shalom every single day, not once, but three times? How much you care about his return to Yerushalayim? Liras mehera b'siferos uzecha. Lahavir gilunem in ha'aretz va'elilim karosi karisun. L'saken olam b'malchus shaka. Do you really look forward to that day? When HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world is going to be fixed? Simply because he's going to come back into the existence of the world and remove himself from the Hester Panim that we all experience from the hidden face of the Rebona Shalom? Is that really what we think about? Says the Chafetz Chaim, it's important to start thinking about it. It's important to consider that. When we talk about a Geula, 
I once asked a number of young students in our community, you know, we talk about Mashiach, we talk about Geula. Why do we want Mashiach? Like, what do you think is going to happen when Mashiach comes? So I've gotten all kinds of different answers. You know, every time there's a tragedy in any community, everybody says, oh, we need Mashiach. I agree, we need Mashiach. But I have a question. When Mashiach comes, is there not going to be any tragedy anymore? Anybody here planning to go to medical school? Nursing school? You're the only one? Yeah? You plan to go to med school? Yeah. Okay. What is it? It's a very noble profession. Right under being a Malami Torah. Right? It's the second most noble profession in the world. So what do you do? You plan to go to medical school. How many years do you have ahead of you until you get finished with it and you start practicing? Ten years? Fair? Safe to say? So you treat your first patient. Ten years. Ten years is a long time. But it's worth it. Because you're going to save lives and you're going to help people. Same with you, right? Here's my question. When somebody gets sick in our community and is diagnosed with cancer, what do we say? Oh, we need Mashiach. So what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? Our assumption is they're not going to be sick anymore. So why are you going to med school? <laughs> you believe in the next 10 years Mashiach is not going to come? I don't know. So I don't know the answer. I'm not sure. What? Is nobody going to be sick? No, don't cancel your plans. Don't, don't, don't. I just, is that, is that really, I don't know. I'm not sure. The Rambam talks about what's it going to be, what's the world going to look like, how are we going to experience things. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. The Rambam writes, nothing's going to change. The Rambam says, everything's going to be the same. The only difference will be Shibud Malchios Vodat. We're going to be under our own sovereignty. No one's going to tell us what to do. No one's going to tell us how to think. But Olam Kim and Hago Noeg, the Ramam says. The world is just going to continue being the way it is. The Raiva disagrees. Other Rishonim have opinions. I don't know. I don't know. I seem to remember the Ramam says. I'm not sure, but I think the Ramam writes. This is one of the things that we won't know until it happens. We won't know exactly what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like. But everybody has their own imagination of what Geula is going to be experienced like. What's that going to feel like? I didn't mean to deflate your great plans. Go ahead with that. But I'm just curious, right? It's our knee-jerk response whenever someone gets sick. Oh, we need a gula. And then what? What's going to happen when we have a gula? So some people I've asked said, hey, we need a gula because then money's going to fall from the trees. Now, like, I assume that's not going to happen. I don't know. But maybe. It would be nice. Like, no one's going to have to work anymore. Is that true? So what are we going to do? What are we going to do all day? So the Navi does say, So, like, everyone's going to learn. What about if somebody has ADHD and really can't focus? So, like, what, for real, what are they going to do? I'm not sure. I don't know. So why do we want a gula? It's not because money's going to fall from the trees. It's not because no one's going to be sick anymore. So why do we want a gula? This is the kasha that is asked by the Dubna Magid. It's not my question. The Dubna Magid suggests the following muscle to explain why we need a gula. And he says, how long am I supposed to go? I saw the next year is at 3.30. You can go till then. So I go till then. Okay. <laughs> so I won't keep you too long. So the Dubna Magid gives a mashal about a young child who was invited to a wedding for the first time in his life. Doesn't really know what it is. His parents get him all dressed up, comes into this hall. He's totally overwhelmed by what he sees. Can't get over it. He walks in and he sees hundreds of people are gathered. 
Then he walks into the next room and he sees that there are two different set of chairs on different sides of the aisle, a long aisle down the middle. He sees a big canopy in the front with only two people standing there. So what does the kid do? Looks around. Again, by Ifen Kovacho. And he walks right up the aisle, stands under the chuppah, and he sees this, a young man and a young woman standing there together. And he turns to the guy and he says, how come everybody else is sitting and you're standing here? He says, well, I'm the chassan. Well, what does that even mean? I don't even know what a chassan is. He says, you don't know what a chassan is? Like, I'm getting married. He says, well, what is that? And can you tell me, you look so much happier than everybody else in the room. Why are you so happy? He says to him, well, I am getting married, so it's very exciting. And the boy is insisting, but why are you excited? Like, I don't really, I've never been to something like this. What happens at a wedding? Why is it so exciting? So the chassan tells him, do you see the tuxedo that I'm wearing? I've never worn a tuxedo in my life. And do you see this expensive pair of shoes? Like, do you know what this feels like? Look at the food we have here. You know, this is the singer of my dreams. And the orchestra I always imagined having at my wedding. Look at all this. Look at what we have. This is just amazing. Why shouldn't I be excited? I'm so excited to be here. Okay. Sees a young woman standing next to this young man and turns to her and says, you know, all the other ladies are sitting over there, but you are sitting here. You're standing here. Why are you here? She says, well, I'm the Kala. Well, what does that mean? Well, don't you know I'm getting married? Well, I don't really know what that means. Gives the whole story again. She says, why am I excited? I came here at 10 o'clock this morning to get my makeup done and my hair. You know how long I worked on this gown? I went for the fittings exactly the way I wanted to be. Everything is amazing. It's just beautiful. And all my friends are here. Look at this jewelry I got. I feel like a princess. I feel like a million dollars. Of course I'm excited. Ask the Dubna Magid, how long do you think this marriage is going to last? If all the Hassan and Kala are excited about at the greatest moment of their celebration is the gown and the jewelry and the makeup and the hair and the symphony orchestra and the singer and all the food, if that's all they're excited about, I would imagine, he says, that marriage is really not going to last. What's exciting about this moment standing under the chuppah? What's exciting is that we are getting together to commit ourselves to each other, to a life of love, to a life of commitment, to a life of celebrating each other's accomplishments, to a life of understanding and being sensitive to one another. That's what's exciting. Now it so happens that part of the way we make this moment special is we get a special gown and we have nice food and we have all the guests here. All of that is a side point. But you're missing the main objective. Why am I excited? because I'm finally being united with the person who I love more than anyone else in the world. That's why I'm excited. Writes the Dubna Magid. Why do we want a Geula? Well, it's true. Maybe money will fall from the trees and nobody's going to get sick anymore and we're not going to have any tsaras and everything's going to be perfect. Maybe all of that is true, but that's not why we want a Geula. That might be a side point of the Geula. We want a geula because we're finally going to have the opportunity to say, Sos asis ba'ashem. Kechasen yechahen pe'er. We're finally going to be reunited with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And we'll be in a relationship that we've waited so many thousands of years to be a part of. That's why we want a geula. Because we'll finally come to a time when we'll have that understanding of what this relationship represents for all of us. 
what it means to be connected with the Ribbonu Shalolo. That's why we want a Gula. Anything short of that is missing the point. And that marriage is not going to last. We have to realize what the aspiration of Gula is really all about. What are we looking forward to? Why do we want this? Why do we want to be a part of this? And what is it supposed to look like for all of us? Now you ask yourself, I'll close with this comment. How will this crazy situation in our world, and like the Gemara says in the end of Masecha Sota, there is no day that isn't worse than the day before. Just turn on the news, look in your phone, or do yourself a favor and don't look at the news. Every single day is worse than the day before. You just see how our world is falling into the abyss with zero moral compass. Did anyone see what happened at the White House last week? Did anyone see what happened? We can't talk about it in a base medrash and a base aknesis. It's disgusting. In the most sacred place in American culture, people have no problem exposing themselves in front of the President of the United States when they're invited to be there. It's sickening. It's sickening. We have no values. We don't stand for anything anymore. The world is degenerating every single day. And by the way, when the Gemara Masechah Sota tells us, I know you're very sad, don't be sad by what I'm saying, but the Gemara Masechah Sota tells us exactly what the end of days is going to look like and everything is coming true. Look up the Gemara on your own. The Gemara says, children will no longer respect their parents. Do you know that I currently in my own shul know of, just myself, it's not, I, I'm not like being snoopy trying to find out what's going on. Four different families who I am aware of, whose children, at least one sibling in the family doesn't talk to the parents. Just four families currently who I'm involved with. I'm sure there are 20. But four that I know of, whose children don't talk to their parents. Now, what can parents possibly have done to deserve that from their children? So, if your parents, Rahman al-Islam, molested you as a child, I would say you're making the right decision. You probably should never talk to that parent again. Got it. I agree. That's an extreme example. None of the four cases I'm dealing with did that happen. So what happened? We got married. The parents weren't respectful of our boundaries, and they wanted us to come for Shabbos too many times. And bleh. Come on. Your parents, figure it out. Figure it out. But the Gemara says, children will have no respect for their parents. And we see it. The Gemara says there's going to be an economic upheaval. The Gemara says things are going to sell for a certain price, then the prices are going to plummet, then they're going to go up again. We're seeing all of this. Everything the Gemara says, chutzpah yazgi, people are going to have no shame. The Gemara says that the generation is going to be led by a bunch of clowns and fools. Look at the world, look what's happening all over us. A bunch of clowns and fools are running our politics everywhere. We know this to be true. This is exactly what's happening. I was actually in Washington, D.C. last week, not on the day that the other thing happened. I was there for something else. I was there with Rabbi Axelrod and a couple of other Rabbanim. And Rabbi Axelrod and I decided while we were there, we had meetings in the White House, but then we decided we were going to go to Congress. And while we were there in, um, in the Capitol, we decided there was, Congress was in session. We decided let's go into the galley, gallery and watch what's going on. I was amazed to watch. There's a guy, I mean, you've all been away for the years, so you don't know what's going on here in local politics, but there's a, there's a congressman from Queens. 
who lied about everything. You ever you heard about the story? Lied about the fact that he his origins, lied about the fact that he went to university, he never graduated college, I think, right? What's the story? Literally, everything about him is a lie. He campaigned on an absolute lie. Not just like, when I become a congressman, I'm going to do this for you, and that didn't come through. That happens all the time. But lied on everything about himself. He said he had this profession, he had this job, he worked in a big company. Nothing was true. Zero. A total and absolute liar. And I'm watching last week, I'm standing in the Capitol, Rabbi Axel and I were both like just watching him. He's sitting there by himself, like nobody wants to talk to him because he's a pariah. The guy's nuts. He's on trial now. And like he won't step down. Such gaiva. He won't step down. The guy's like 30 years old, total clown, like absolutely insane. But this guy is making decisions on behalf of the United States. He has a vote in Congress. I don't have a vote in Congress. This guy's sitting on the floor giving his vote. Exactly what Chazal say. A clown. An absolute liar. Standing there with no shame representing the United States of America. Everything the Gemara tells us has come true. Which I hope means that the next step of the Gemara is also going to come true. That this is Himos HaMashiach. I don't know how much worse life can get than what we're experiencing today. I'm not a very negative person. I'm just an observant person. Look what's going on in the world. Just see what's happening. The upside of that is be proud of the fact that you're affiliated with the Jewish people. Because we are the moral compass of the world. That wasn't the point of my bringing all of that. But be proud of who we are. Don't try to be like that. Shalom asanu aratzos. Thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu every day. That's not who you are. Don't feel I'm a Nebuch because I'm not that. You're privileged not to be that. You're blessed not to be born into that. Is it hard sometimes to be a Jew? Is it hard to pay tuitions? Is it hard to live a lifestyle that we all have to live here? Yes, it's hard. Sometimes it's very challenging. But it's meaningful. We stand for something. We are something special. I met with the vice president last week. I told her this. I don't feel bad that I'm a Jew. Look at all the anti-Semitism going on. And she said, oh, you know, we're fighting with this. I don't feel bad. I feel proud that I'm a Jew. I'm happy that you're trying to stand up for us. I'm happy that you're trying to fight on our behalf and that you just passed a bill about anti-Semitism that is unprecedented. Is it exactly what we want? No, but it's a big step in the right direction. But do I feel bad about the fact that I'm a Jew? No, I feel extremely proud. I feel extremely happy for everything I represent. So with all that going on, with the degeneration of society happening all around us, in every part of our society, in the upper echelons of society, even more so, you ask yourself, how are we ever going to work this out? How are we ever going to have a guru? So let me close. We said a lot from the Chafetz Chaim. Let me close with one final comment of the Chafetz Chaim. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of Yosef Atzal. Yosef is abandoned by his brothers. He is neglected. His whole life is upside down. If we had expert therapists in the days of Yosef, I don't know how many years of therapy he would be in. Imagine the abandonment and then him thinking back that his own father set him up to this and he knew that his brothers were going to kill him. Uh, imagine what he's been through. And he gets thrown into a land where he doesn't speak the language, he doesn't know anybody. Then, of course, he gets involved with Aishas Potiphar, that wasn't a choice that he made. He didn't know what to do. He gets thrown in jail. 
His life is over. Solitary confinement. He's stuck forever. Stuck forever. Before I get to that point, should I share with you another amazing story? Or, or we're on a time clock here. Okay. Anyone here who reads Mishpacha magazine? Don't be embarrassed. They happen to have great stories all the time. Mishpacha magazine sometimes has very fascinating articles. Last week, they had an article about a woman. I'm only saying this because it's just an easy reference for you to read the article. A woman, Silva Zalmanson. Anybody heard of Silva Zalmanson? This is actually what I told the vice president when I met her last week. So I told her an amazing story that I heard from Natan Sharansky. Last week, I saw the Mishpacha magazine wrote the same story, but didn't give all the dramatic details that Natan Sharansky had shared. Natan Sharansky told the story that there was a woman by the name of Silva Zalmanson, who was one of the early refuseniks in Russia. She was with a group of 12 or 15 people who were trying to plan for a year and a half that they were going to hijack a Russian plane that had 16 seats in it, and they were going to fly it to Yerushalayim. That was the plan. And they had all kinds of professionals who were with them. They had someone who used to work in engineering who was going to come with them, teach them how to fly the plane. They had it all worked out. What they didn't realize, the only problem was that the KGB was in on this from day one, and the KGB was following them for a year and a half, watching how they were planning this whole thing. As they all stepped onto the runway to hijack the plane, they were all arrested, and they were all put into solitary confinement, and they stayed in jail for 10 to 15 years, all of them varying degrees. Okay. At the closing of the trial of Silva Zalmanson, they made some kind of kangaroo court. At the closing of this trial, the judge turns to her and says, is there anything you'd like to say before I give the final ruling? And she stands up and she says, yes, there's one thing I'd like to say. And she sits down and says, now you can take me away. Eight years later, Natan Sharansky had the same thing. He was arrested for whatever his activities were. And he went on trial, and once again, the judge turns to him at the end and says, before we do the sentencing, is there anything you'd like to say? Any closing words? And he says, yes. To all of you sitting here in the room, I have nothing to say. You're all going to disappear. You won't be here in another hundred years. But to every Jew all over the world, I have one thing to tell you. And I believe it. And he said, you can take me away. Natan Sharansky explained, why is that the one thing that Silva said eight years before me and that I said eight years later? And he said, every Jew is not exactly sure how long they're going to live. Nobody knows what their future will bring. I was looking at the rest of my life sitting in solitary confinement and dying in jail. I never imagined I would see the light of day again. He didn't think that that was going to be a possibility. But one thing I did know through all of that was that the eternity of the Jewish people will never fail and that the eternity of the Jewish people is inextricably bound with the eternal capital being Yerushalayim. That's going to be the end of the story. doesn't matter how you look at it. That's what the end of the story is going to be. Jewish people bound with Yerushalayim is going to live on far longer than any of us here in the world. And I take comfort in that, he said, that I'm connected to something that is so much greater than myself, that is so much more far-reaching than I am. That's what I take comfort in. So we think about 
a geula. And we ask ourselves, how is this ever going to work itself out? Think about the story of Yosef. Imagine he's sitting there in solitary confinement. What's going to be? How's this going to be worked out? Now think about the other perspective of his brothers. I assume at some point they felt guilty. Then they get through this whole process, so much confusion. They travel down to Mitzrayim. Something's found in their, in their bags. Like, we know we didn't steal this cup. They can't figure out what's going on. Mystifying. Nothing makes any sense. The whole world is upside down. How does everything become clear, writes the Chafetz Chaim? How does everything become clear to them? Two words. Yosef stands up and says, Ani Yosef. Oh my. All the brothers turn to him and say, Wow, now everything makes sense. By saying two words, a whole mystifying existence suddenly came into perspective. Rise the Chafetz Chaim. You doubt HaKadosh Baruch Hu's ability to work all this out? To figure out how to put the world back into where it needs to get to? To take our confusing life experience and make it make sense once again? You know all the Rebona Shalom has to do is say, Ani Hashem. Just like Yosef said, Ani Yosef, and suddenly everything made sense. The Rebona Shalom just has to reveal himself and say, Ani Hashem. And suddenly the whole world will come into a context that we'll understand. That's all it takes. And that's what we look forward to. Sos asis b'Hashem. We want a geula because we want the opportunity to be reunited with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and have that perspective of what it means to live a life being engaged with the Rebona Shalom on a consistent basis. Yehi Ratzon, as we daven every day, She'yibana beis ha-migdash b'mehera v'yameinu v'sein chalkeinu b'sarasecha we look forward to the day when we'll have the opportunity not only to be living in Yerushalayim, not only to be experiencing a Beis HaMikdash, but that we'll have the opportunity to be reunited with the Rebona Shalom again and to serve Him the way we're supposed to, to have that vision of Ani Hashem, to have that perspective and that understanding of what it means to be once again in the embrace of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yehiratzon, and we should all be a part of that amazing story of our redemption. Wishing all of you great hatzlacha and amazing.